Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Morning. Yes, g'day Kim, how are you? Yeah, not bad. It's been ages since I've seen you. I've been very busy being sick. <laughs> well, we're glad that Working we warmed hard. you up and got you home. Yes. <laughs> at the studio at 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast this morning. I got to go to two completely different events today, this week, which I'm going to report on. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, first I went off to the uh, Victorian Parliament steps on Wednesday the 24th. That was pensioners... Fair go for pensioners. I went off to that uh, demonstration. Were there canapes and... <laughs> no. No? <laughs> there were a lot of angry people, though. Oh, you know, it's very sweet. Uh, a lot of them are older people, but there were younger people there as well because, of course, fairness for pensioners uh, goes right across the age groups in Australia. So they had a lot to, to say and uh, they uh, formed a, a circle and uh, there were a lot of old unionists who were there uh, who were organising, so uh, they... Uh, yeah, you've got to be careful for those. Yeah, they never die. Hmm. Yeah, an old unionist never dies. But anyway, it was a very interesting event, so I've got a little excerpt. But the other event, which was... Com- it was like going to the complete opposite. I went to the Grand Hyatt on Friday to the Committee of Economic Development of Australia. It's called CEDA. So did the police come to chuck you out? No, no, there were police oh, on. I, I've got the two mixed up. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And um, the, this crew are uh, very interesting because uh, they they were doing a thing called the Economic and Political Overview 2016. And uh, it was interesting because they spent a lot of time, they talk about how independent they are because apparently the big theme is that people who represent moneyed interests are independent, that money interests are neutral, they're value-free. Do you think they're just getting the two meanings of the word independent mixed up as in a person of independent means? Maybe. Anyway, I found that really interesting. They didn't seem to think that there was a problem with that, but they did stress it a lot because I think that PR, uh, public relations means that if you mention something long enough and often enough, it becomes true. But anyway, I've got this little excerpt I wanted you to hear from Kelly O'Dwyer, Honourable Kelly O'Dwyer. This is the opening part of her speech. She, you may not know this, but she's the Assistant Treasurer of this fair land. And she was definitely speaking to a home team audience. This is very much a forum where ideas are shared, debated and defended. 
And it's a forum where ideas take hold. Ideas that are central to building an environment in which every Australian has the opportunity to prosper. That is certainly the focus of the Turnbull government. We want to provide that opportunity to all Australians through a growing economy. An economy that can deliver the jobs of the future. And to do this, we have created a plan for economic growth that is built on the following key pillars. Infrastructure investment, trade liberalisation, a sound budget, a resilient and efficient financial system, a better taxation system, a coordinated productivity and competition agenda, greater workforce participation and, of course, innovation. But what do these pillars mean in practice? Let me give you a quick snapshot. We are supporting the ideas boom with a major innovation package that backs entrepreneurialism and transformational ideas. We are aligning our economy with the world's fastest growing and biggest economies with a serious series of game-changing trade deals. We are progressing our $50 billion national infrastructure plan to unlock economic potential in our cities, in our regions and in our rural areas. We are fostering a modern and flexible workplace that employs more people and encourages more participation. We are developing a better taxation system that encourages greater investment to create a more competitive Australia. These are just some of the ways that the government is building an agile and dynamic economy. This is our plan, and by getting it right, by creating an economy that is fit for the purpose in the 21st century, Australians will have the opportunity to prosper. Isn't that fantastic? Oh, yeah, I love the transformational ideas. I could work for these people. It'd yeah. be great. I'd be like... Let's pay our workers less and yeah, make more money. That's, that's right. always the idea. And, you know, the very interesting points, there's a couple of things in that where she says that uh, we're going to unleash all these wonderful words, uh, unlock all this money for infrastructure. Uh, actually, the next speaker from the Commonwealth Bank actually mentions that the, gov- the, the government investment in infrastructure is down by 30%. Did you know that? Mm. And uh, this is real figures and that uh, the federal government has refused to put money into, up to this date, have refused to put money into the Daniel uh, Andrews government, Victoria government's uh, expansion of the metro, uh, the metro plan. And that's why you'll find on the uh, front page of The Age today that uh, the uh, government here in Victoria has expanded its... Uh, uh, it's uh, loans. No, mm. no, they're increasing their loans so that they can um, sh- uh, uh, factor in uh, this infrastructure stuff without having to go and uh, go cap in hand to the federal government. That uh, was just playing games. Just playing games. Lots of words, uh, telling people what they want to hear but uh, not much truth involved, depending on what it is, you, the truth you want to uh, get uh, out of it yourself. Now, then I got to speak to Lou Wheeler. Now, Lou Wheeler is from uh, Fair Go for Pensioners, and she was standing on the corner of Spring and Burke in the city, handing out 
uh, pamphlets with the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners Employment Policy, uh, which they uh, are putting out in the lead up towards the next election, which apparently, according to uh, Peter Reith, Peter Children Overboard Reith, that zombie politician who happened to be at CEDAR, uh, that the next election is going to be on July the 2nd. Anyway, uh, the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners are going to have another rally closer to the event. But let's hear what Lou Wheeler had to say in comparison to dear old Kelly O'Dwyer. I'm uh, Lou Wheeler. I'm with Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition. And we're here today to um, launch our jobs and training recommendation statement, which uh, in brief um, asks the government to fast track the promised 100,000 jobs to publicly fund and administer uh, um, training and skills development for for unemployed people and to also deliver those programs in culturally appropriate ways. And we're looking at entry-level training, we're looking at uh, professional training and we're looking at um, an acknowledgement that there are people who need English language classes to get into the job market. But we do know that there's only one job for every six you know, persons who are looking, that's actively looking, and that doesn't even include those who are wanting more hours of work, so the underemployed. Somehow or another, this crisis has just been moved aside. You know, they say to us, oh, look over there, the unemployment rate has come down. And in fact, it's gone back up again in January, and most informed commentators are saying that the unemployment rate will stay at 6% or above right throughout 2016-17. And, of course, those um, averages, the 6%, hides pockets of, of unemployment. Like in Broadmeadow, in Dandenong, you've got rates of unemployment over 20%. So that's why we're here. Recent reports have shown that the work for the doll, which is actually quite draconian, has had very little, if not, been a complete failure. Well, yeah. <laughs> If you, if you consider um, an improvement of 2% that um, leading towards a, a job, that is a complete failure. And I think it's up to 7% if you look at part-time and casual work. But we know that most people want full-time work, not part-time and casual. Some people want part-time, but not, not as many as looking for full-time, and those jobs are not about. So they're spending a billion dollars on a hopelessly inadequate a punitive program that isn't working and they refuse. We're asking for that money to be redirected into real jobs, jobs that are related to local labour markets right throughout the country. You've touched on the issue of uh, immigrants. You've touched on the issue of youth unemployment. What about aged unemployment? Very, very serious problem. Somehow in the mind, we haven't moved, you know, in about 30 years anywhere. It was seen that the dole... Uh, was a short-term temporary measure. And that's when, you know, way back in those dark, dim days when 2% was considered, you know, 2% unemployment. And so we've got a situation where the long-term unemployed, because of age discrimination, uh, and particularly for older people, they're out of work for up to four years. They can't get a job. This is not a temporary measure. And for people who fall in that age group um, who are older, 45 plus, 
but too young for the, uh, to be eligible for the pension, then they're forced onto New Start. If you have no other source of income, you are immediately driven into poverty. And I think, you know, what Fair Go for Pensioners and, and some other uh, organisations have said for now for many years, why do we think as a society it's okay to drive people into poverty when they're unemployed? It's just, it's, it's disgraceful. Um, and what we're also pointing out is inequality is increasing in this society and unemployment is one of the key factors pointing to poverty. So, you know, why we're overlooking over here and they keep saying, oh, jobs, you know, it's just rhetoric and they're not doing enough about it. If, you know, <laughs> their idea of creating jobs for the unemployed is work for the doll and that, oh, that's worked really well, hasn't it? It's called Fair Go for Pensioners. The issue of old age pension, for example the movement of it to 70 years and uh, this latest uh, assault on people who own their homes who are older saying that they're selfish and that they need to sell their homes to support their old age. What do you have to say about that? Well, again, it's sort of look over here, isn't it? It's it's penalising, you know, people who are quite vulnerable because many of... uh, the um, older age pensioners might own their home but they're income poor, that's it and they can't eat their bricks and mortar Um, and what we say is there are there are sources of revenue that would well and truly fill the budget gaps but that means you're actually taking things off rich people and of course the coalition government in particular isn't prepared to do that. We say there's at least 20 billion um, to be had from tax uh, cutting back on superannuation to tax concessions, which we know the majority of that money goes to the rich. A whole lot of poor people, again because of averages, they come away with hardly anything, maybe $40,000, um, when you've got somebody else who's got $12 million in the super fund tax-free. This was never about an inheritance saving and a wealth-generating scheme. It was supposed to be to help everyone have a better and comfortable retirement, and that's just not... It's being scammed yet again. We've got negative gearing that could deliver, oh, you know, five to six billion a year. We've got um, private health insurance that, that could deliver if it was dropped, put back into the public system. It could, it could deliver five to six billion a year. We could cut military spending and rather increasing it. Um, you know, there's many, many ways that the revenue base could be increased without tackling and hurting the most vulnerable. Well, there you go. That was Lou Wheeler from uh, Fair Go for uh, Pensioners and her little uh speech or talk chat with me was full of facts full of life experience quite a different world that two different australias we're living here in of apparently yes i know you can feel like with kelly o'dwyer it's like well she's not talking to me who was she talking to this well she was talking to a home team audience finance (laughs) and uh, a couple of university representatives. A couple of uh, government departments had bought tables at this event. Cost uh, $300 per seat. I didn't even hear about it. Well, there you go. (laughs) Anyway, by the by, um, you've got a little bit to talk about with negative gearing. Did you want to... Oh, before we... Well, before we do some... Well, dirt. I don't think Kelly O'Dwyer would consider it dirt, but it's interesting that Kelly O'Dwyer, she succeeded um, Peter Costello, who we have to congratulate because he got 
a new job as chairman of Channel 9. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> Says everything, doesn't it? Yes, but guess who she worked for before she came and took over Peter Costello's seat? Oh, well, who? Freehills. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's a trifecta. But we've got uh, ca- uh, cash in employment. We've got the uh, new uh, uh, equal opportunities uh, disc- discrimination woman uh, and this one. Yeah. They're all from Freehills. Freehills is a trifecta. Yeah, the anti-union law firm, which has been consistently used by the government. Yes. Um, The other thing that I wanted to pick up on was that Lou was talking about negative gearing, and I think we've heard a lot of very misleading information on the news about negative gearing. People might be getting as annoyed as me about that figure that Scott Morrison keeps trotting out about, you know, that... Two-thirds of people, you know, mum and dad investors are on less than 80,000 taxable income and therefore negative gearing is actually for the battlers, you know, those battlers who have a um, property portfolio. But actually what's interesting about those statistics that he's using of taxable income is that there is also almost 74,000 people in Australia Australia who are claiming negative gearing who are on $0 taxable income. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit fishy? <laughs> That's right. Thank but you. The reason is because taxable income is the amount of income that you claim after you have taken all the tax-free benefits of the negative gearing. It also doesn't take into account any trusts that you may be living on. Not that I think anyone here is living on any trust. So the actual figures, um, if you look at net income, is that it's like the top 10% the people in the highest earning bracket are the ones who are claiming the vast, vast amount of negative gearing mm. profits. Basically. Well, I'll tell you Deductions. what. Um, I wanted to – the next piece that we're going to have on uh, on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR, here with Annie and Kim, I couldn't help myself. I have to play. Uh, and I know it's not, it's not because I'm a, a sadist. But, uh, or a masochist, but I really need to play you the speech that Kelly O'Dwyer did then give us because it actually uh, proves what the unions have been saying. They're coming after your superannuation. In one whole piece, the, and this is the, you'll hear it first on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, this is the full spiel, a uh, full debating argument that the... Uh, federal government is going to be pushing during the election, leading up to the election, it's going to be cold cuts, uh, pre-wrapped with cellophane, uh, uh, leading up to the election like chops. You won't ever hear it all in one piece again, I can swear. So we've got, this is uh, what you should take into account is that superannuation, superannuation is a big bundle of money. The representative is a code word for union board members of superannuation funds and that they're evil, as in they're not independent. No, no, they actually have the interests of the superannuates at heart, which is just shocking. Which means they're not independent, unlike people who represent money who are independent, apparently, and how a Royal Commission and the Productivity Commission can be used to get your hands on a large bundle of money for the people you really represent, right? Keep that in mind. Here we go. Hold on to your hats. In my time today, 
I would like to focus on one key aspect of the economy that I haven't mentioned. It is an industry that has a direct bearing on most Australians. It is one so large, so far-reaching, that in the coming decades it may exceed the size of the entire banking sector. I'm talking, of course, about superannuation. This $2 trillion industry, which is larger than Australia's GDP, is critical to our broader economy. Our superannuation industry is the fifth largest private pension fund market globally, only behind the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan and Canada. And Australia's superannuation assets are projected to increase to over $9 trillion by 2040. This is a system that people are forced to contribute their money to, with compulsory contributions currently set at 9.5% of an employee's ordinary earnings. In addition, taxpayers support this system by way of concessional tax arrangements. Given all of this, our system can't simply be good enough. It must be an A-grade 21st century superannuation and retirement income system. After all, as former Treasurer John Dawkins said when he introduced the superannuation guarantee legislation, the increased self-provision for retirement will permit a higher standard of living in retirement than if we continue to rely on the age pension alone. Self-provision will increase the flexibility in the Commonwealth's budget in future years, especially as our population ages, and will increase our national savings overall. At the time, it was also hoped that legislated superannuation would relieve future pressures on the aged pension system to provide income in retirement that can substitute or supplement the aged pension. As such, the government is committed to delivering the best possible outcomes for everyday Australians who are required to contribute. We want to encourage people to engage and we want to protect those that are disengaged. That means that we need a system that is more flexible, more transparent and offers greater choice. In other words, a system that is the very best that it can be. It is what Australians expect and it is what Australians quite rightly demand. The government is delivering on our vision for an A-grade superannuation system with a series of interconnected reforms. Some are well advanced, others are on our agenda for the year ahead. The first of those that I want to focus on is governance reform. Superannuation is very different to what it was 20 years ago. When the superannuation guarantee system was introduced in 1992, it was a small industry dotted with many standalone corporate funds. This was the landscape in which governance arrangements were set. With the new system, it was seen as vital to have equal numbers of employer and employee representatives on superannuation fund trustee boards, allowing both to have oversight and responsibility. And this is largely how it has stayed. But time marches on. 
Superannuation isn't a nascent industry anymore. Superannuation funds are more open than ever before to the public. They're large and they're complex businesses. Today, directors appointed by employer and employee groups are increasingly less likely to represent the broader membership of those funds. An industry as big as superannuation, and this important to our financial system, should have the highest standards and the best practices when it comes to governance. We know that good governance, such as having independent directors on boards, is critical to achieving the best long-term results for members. Good governance promotes confidence in a fund's leadership, its capacity and in its capability. A diversity of skills and backgrounds on boards is important to optimising performance and superannuation boards are no exception to this. But right now, many superannuation funds are out of step with many other parts of our economy. They are certainly out of step with other prudentially regulated sectors, such as banking and insurance, which are required to have a majority of independent directors. That is the minimum, and it is done to improve performance and to improve accountability. I say that it is time to raise the bar. It is time that the superannuation industry had a governance structure that reflects the world in which we live today. Ask yourselves this. If Australians are being forced to put their money into the superannuation system, shouldn't superannuation funds have the highest quality, best equipped board leadership? Shouldn't they be afforded the same, if not higher, standards of governance? The reality is that by clinging to an old set of governance rules, the superannuation industry is not only at risk of being left behind, it is being unfair to everyday Australians required to participate in our superannuation system. To see instances of this, we need look no further than some of the findings of the recent Royal Commission. Let me give you a quick example. The privacy violation at Seabus Super. For those who are unfamiliar with it, Seabus Super was a default super fund for a building company, Liscon. In 2013, the CFMEU was involved in an industrial dispute with Liscon. Seabus then provided the personal information of its Liscon members to the CFMEU to assist them in that industrial dispute. It appears that this was not an isolated incident. According to the Royal Commission, KPMG identified 59 incidents where CBUS members' personal information was emailed externally between the 1st of January 2013 and the 12th of May 2014. CBUS commissioned an independent review by Professor Graeme Samuel, AC, and Mr Robert Van Walkom. That review recommended that CBUS reflect the Chair's independence in the Constitution and consider appointing directors with, and I quote, no association with the sponsoring organisations. The Government agrees with both of those recommendations. We firmly believe that if there were to be better governance standards, these situations would be much less likely to happen.
That is why, last year, we proposed a bill, currently before the Senate, that will see all super funds having one-third independent directors, including an independent chair on their trustee boards. This modernised structure will be a win-win, both for boards and for their members. It would see an outpouring of new ideas. It would mix up the skills and broaden the views and experiences that are at the table. So, with all of this in mind, I was disappointed that last year there was a dishonest campaign run against this very common sense proposal. And today, I'd like to bust a few of the myths that have been perpetuated. The first myth is that there is no reason for change that this is simply an ideological move by the coalition government. That is wrong. The recent financial system inquiry, which looked at superannuation, recommended that a majority of directors, not just one third, be independent and recommended an independent chair. Meanwhile, the Cooper review under the previous Labor government recommended a minimum of one third independent directors. That is two independent reviews both refuting the notion that we can continue on the same path, both recommending changes in the interests of members. Another myth is that the government wants to end equal representation. That is also wrong. The government's bill simply proposes one-third of directors be independent, not a majority, and proposes that they have an independent chair. Beyond this, the composition of the board is at the discretion of the board. They will be free to enshrine equal representation in their constitutions if that is what they want. The last myth that I'll mention today is that this is a targeted campaign against industry funds. That is also wrong. There are around 242 funds, only 43 of which are industry funds. Our government's reforms apply broadly. They are not specific to one part of the industry. They reach across and apply equally to corporate, retail and industry funds. As I have said publicly many times, the government doesn't have a problem with industry funds. While some of the most exa recent examples of problems do relate to industry funds, these problems are not exclusive to them. Let me stress again, this is not about values and ideology. Our reform is about outcomes, performance, accountability and consumer protection. It is about safeguarding the money and retirement futures of millions of Australians. That is why we have received positive feedback on our proposals from many corners. For example, on Monday this week, Ken Henry AC, the former Treasury Secretary, was reported in the Australian newspaper as saying that it was time that industry funds accepted the need for new governance standards as advocated by the government. And the argument that the system isn't broken, why fix it, was a bit like saying a house that hadn't been torched shouldn't have insurance. There was more this week with Women on Board's Executive Chair, Ruth Med, reported as saying the industry fund lobby was wrong to resist changes. David Gonski AC in this month's Investment Magazine is quoted as saying, if you are representative, 
it is very hard to keep your independence of mind because if you are doing your job by acting as a representative, you actually have a conflict to represent and to be independent. It is much easier for a person to have independence of mind when they are genuinely independent. I now want to move on to highlight two other areas where the government expects to introduce legislation in the coming weeks. The first is to provide more employees with the ability to choose the superannuation fund that receives their money. Currently, an estimated two million employees do not have the opportunity to choose their own fund. A common way that this can occur is through enterprise bargaining agreements and workplace determinations, which mandate a given super fund or funds and satisfy choice of fund requirements themselves. We want people to be able to make choices about their retirement income. We want them to be active in making decisions about their future. So the government will extend choice of funds to employees under enterprise bargaining agreements that are made from the 1st of July 2016. This will eventually give choice to around 800,000 of the estimated 2 million employees that currently do not have it. This change is designed to let people take control of their superannuation to improve retirement outcomes. It's about employees being able to choose the fund that best suits their needs, be it an industry fund, a retail fund, or a self-managed super fund. Extending choice of fund was recommended by both the Financial System Inquiry and the Royal Commission into Trade Union Governance and Corruption. The benefit of being able to choose a fund includes being able to avoid duplicate fees and duplicate insurance premiums, ultimately saving members money. Fees, as we know, can have a big impact on retirement savings and income in retirement. Analysis of the financial system inquiry showed that for a male on average weekly ordinary time earnings, a 30 basis point reduction in average superannuation fees in APRA regulated funds could provide up to $2,000 per year in retirement income. That amount could pay for a retired couple's building and contents insurance or phone or internet. In fact, it could pay for anything that that person chose to spend that money on. Choice can also increase competition between funds for members, which may drive lower fees. In the broader industry, it encourages competition and it encourages member engagement. I have heard the view put that choice should be restricted on the basis that individuals don't always know what is in their best interests and that so many people are disengaged. I reject this. For those who want to make their own decisions about their own money and their fund, they should be able to do so, with default funds as a backstop for those who are not engaged. The second area where the government expects to introduce legislation in the coming weeks is in relation to our election commitment to improve transparency and comparability of information to help people to make choices about where their money goes. Transparency through improved disclosure is critical to the operation of Australia's market-based superannuation system. It improves understanding, awareness and engagement across the community. 
The 2010 Cooper Review found that Australia's superannuation system is characterised by a lack of transparency, comparability of funds and consequently accountability. It recommended the disclosure of portfolio holdings and product dashboards. The frameworks for the choice of product dashboard and portfolio holding disclosure regimes were legislated by the previous Labor government in 2012. However, the regimes are currently not operational because the existing law is overly onerous and creates significant compliance costs on industry, making it effectively unworkable. Superannuation funds have indicated that while they strongly support increased transparency across the superannuation sector, the compliance costs of current legislation, which will most likely be borne by members, are excessive. International market financial analysts Morningstar recently gave Australia a D rating for disclosure in its Global Investor Experience Report, noting that Australia remains the only country out of 25 assessed without any working periodic mandatory portfolio holdings disclosure. The portfolio holding disclosure regime that we are implementing will require funds to publish for each investment option information about the nature and the value of financial products or other property that is or an associated entity has invested in. Information relating to the first investment in non-associated entities will also need to be disclosed. This will provide members with information as to where their contributions are being directed. Through consultations on the draft legislation, we have heard concerns about the disclosure of the value of unlisted infrastructure in relation to the start date. And uh, we will have more to say on this shortly. We recognise that this is a significant issue. Moving on to the product dashboard now, the legislation will require funds to have product dashboards for the 10 largest choice products by funds under management. Limiting to the top 10 is designed to facilitate meaningful disclosure without overwhelming consumers and also minimise compliance costs for funds. Treasury estimates the Choice Product Dashboard will capture around 70% of all choice investment options. In fact, it will probably be significantly more than 70%. Superannuation funds will also continue to be required to provide product dashboards for all of their MySuper products. This will mean the product dashboards will be provided for all of the major investment options offered across the entire superannuation sector. The changes, again, will apply equally to corporate, industry, retail and public sector funds. In implementing our election commitment in this area, the government is seeking to find an appropriate balance between increasing transparency in the superannuation industry and minimising the compliance costs. Ensuring these requirements are workable for the industry will allow the benefits of increased transparency to be achieved, which is ultimately in members' interests. I've talked about three important reforms that the Parliament will soon be considering. But work is well progressed to deliver on other aspects of the government's financial systems program in response to the recommendations from David Murray's financial system inquiry. Last week, the Treasurer and I released terms of reference for the first two stages of the Productivity Commission review, a review that will look at the efficiency and competitiveness of the entire superannuation system. 
The government has also announced the results of, uh, will also announce the results of its retirement income streams review shortly, and we are progressing work on comprehensive income products for retirement. We want to facilitate better retirement products that allow retirees to improve their standard of living. So, in conclusion, I note that the superannuation system is growing every day. It touches on the lives of millions and millions of Australians right across our nation. And its importance to our economy cannot be underestimated. We need a system that is more flexible, more transparent and offers greater choice. In short, a system that works for all Australians. And that is what the Turnbull government is delivering. Thank you. Have you got the transparency? Transparency. And it's all about choice. Can I choose not to have a super fund? Can I choose to have a pension instead? Yeah, exactly. Oh, it, it's, uh, it's outrageous. But anyway, well, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We've just been uh, listening to the Honourable Kelly O'Dwyer, the Assistant Treasurer, about uh, their coming for your super. Anyway, uh, online at the moment, we've got the wonderful Duncan Hart, who has been... Uh, at home uh, in Queensland, waiting to chat to us about something very significant. G'day, Duncan. How are you? I'm good. How how are you in Melbourne? (laughs) Good. Hi, Duncan. (laughs) Now, now the reason for why we're talking to Duncan is because uh, Duncan, uh, with the AMIEU, the Meat Workers Union, have uh, queried the... uh, uh, the uh, fairness of the deal put together by SDA and Coles. Stitched up together, maybe a well, way of saying it. <laughs> and other people call it a sweetheart deal. Anyway, the, the first uh, hearing for the Fair Work Commission was on February the 2nd. And uh, how ha- are you feeling right at the moment, Duncan? Um, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm personally feeling pretty confident about the whole situation. Um the hearing on the second of February was uh, the evidence hearing, and it was um, it was pretty uh, laughable to see the sort of attempt by Coles to put forward an argument as to how they could justify um, workers losing like such extensive penalty rates and still being better off. Um, so yeah, I'm feeling pretty confident, but I guess we've still got the um, we've still always just got the fact that Coles is a huge, you know, billion-dollar corporation and also just the Fair Work Commission itself seems to um, sometimes do things which question their um, neutrality in this issue. Yes, that's a very neutral way of you putting it. Would you be able to describe uh, some of the the conditions that they, or the ludicrous deal that they put forward that they say will leave uh, retail workers better off? Okay, yeah. So basically there's a whole range of um, uh, ways that the agreement, the um, SDA Coles negotiated agreement, uh, leaves workers worse off. But the most the most um, uh, clear way is just that it has cut penalty rates for um, every uh, every night shift. So usually after 6pm you're entitled to a 25% loading and that's scrapped in the, the agreement. Um, also, an exactly the same level of loading for Saturdays of 25% have scrapped in the agreement, and the loading for Sundays is actually half 
of what it is in the award, just 200% in the agreement. So, um, or 100% loading, yeah. So... I'll have to, um, but the, but Duncan, it was even like more laughable. I was actually sitting in the hearing uh, yeah. as you were in with the yeah. link. In um, we could see you sitting there, and uh, yeah. some some of these so called uh, expert witnesses brought by Coles, the woman, the academic who uh, who plagiarised. Louise Rowland, is that? Yeah, who plagiarised. Yeah. yeah. And and this idea that they had said things like, uh, this new agreement made workers better off because they could ask for flexible hours and this mm. ability to ask for flexible hours could, uh, it's provable that uh, people will uh, be able to keep their job in domestic violence situations and mm. therefore that could be quantified and and mm. made to look like people are in a better position financially yeah well well you've done a good description right there well yeah that's, that's the sort of thing they had to rely on is like this type of uh voodoo where you well first of all assign a assign a a, a a numeric value to a non like a to a condition in the agreement which has no um actual numeric value but but the, the main thing about that that particular example, and there was actually a, yeah, there was a million and one of this type of, um, yeah, uh, really strange behaviour. Yeah, really strange. Yeah, really strange. Unexplainable, isn't it? Yeah, how could they come up with this stuff? Um, the, I think the um, the thing that the, the the thing about that example was that they actually said what that entitlement actually is in the agreement is the the right for you, for people who've suffered domestic violence to take leave using their annual leave so you would think actually any anyone should be able to take the annual leave at any time uh pretty easily um so it's hardly a very um i suppose a strong entitlement that's actually gonna really I, I don't think actually um improve people's situation very much um but they uh this so-called expert um louise roland and, and a lot of her evidence actually was um uh, plagiarised is worth pointing out um, she she actually argued that this the existence of this provision would actually um, reduce reduce the impact of domestic violence on um, on the on workers at Coles to absolutely zero that there would be no incidences of workers being uh, um, well the, the thing she was concerned with was workers leaving uh, their job that, that, that no worker would leave their job uh, due to the existence of the provision, which allows them to take uh, annual leave if they suffer domestic violence, that's which I just think is a absolutely ridiculous situation. But that's the actual evidence that they try to put forward, and they, and they can and they try to use that to say, so this has a certain amount of value, um, which therefore should be um, weighed against the actually existing penalty rates and other conditions that you get in the award. It's absolutely ludicrous. I think the other thing that I found quite ludicrous is that they were claiming that you could be better off under the new agreement if you took the full eight hours blood donor leave, mm. 10 days mm. defence service leave, whatever that is, five days of unpaid leave, 11 days of mm. carer's leave, three days compassionate leave, sorry, it goes on, three days of emergency yeah. service leave and three days of natural disaster leave um, and 26 yep. weeks with a serious injury. So let's hoping all those things happen to you, Duncan, so that you'll be better off. 
Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that that was the that was the that was the, the well, yeah. Actually, the that was one. There was one example where which was which was sort of read aloud in in the actual hearing. But actually, every single um, example that Coles sort of modelled, let's just call it that. Um, actually, yeah, did in, did actually uh, base the base their numbers on an assumption that every single worker had access to all those type, those kinds of leaves. I was going to say, but they refused to include penalty rates for uh, people working in cool rooms or people mm. for higher duties or people who are trained as uh, and take on board the first aid uh, jobs or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's right. Well, they definitely, yeah, they, even, on the, even on the basis of, well, that's what you would think they'd, they might want to even just try and have a, you know, they might want to, considering they're just making numbers out of thin air, you might you might think that they wanted to um, at least uh, give a full account for what actually is in the award, which is superior to the agreement. But um, no, they didn't even do that in most, you know, in pretty much every instance. So it was a, it was a real, it was a real farce, uh, to be quite honest with you, the evidence that we heard from Coles on the 2nd of February. Yeah, but but don't you, didn't you think that it was an eye opener as well? To, sorry to butt in, but mm-hmm. I thought okay. it was a real eye opener that uh, these so-called expert witnesses from Ernst and mm-hmm. Young were were actually—I have to say it—were complete rubbish. Yeah, well, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was an eye opener to see, I suppose, just how. Um... Well, you take them seriously. Are you still there? Oh, he's gone away. He's disappeared. There's obviously... No, no, it's okay. No, it's something to do with our system. Apparently, uh, we need to get in contact with our tech. It's not us and it's not ASIO. But anyway, we will leave, that, leave it there. Um, and if you'd like to hear more about that, Duncan will be speaking this Easter at the Marxism Conference about organising workers, um, retail workers, and we'll be speaking on um, what has what will happen at the next um, hearing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's uh, It was scheduled for Monday, but according to uh, Duncan, uh, there's uh, maybe a delay because the huge amounts of evidence that's being now given to them by Coles, pages and pages of it, they received them, I think it was on Friday, and they're supposed to be prepared by Monday. So I think there might be an extension allowed. But uh, keep, we'll keep you posted because this is an extraordinarily important uh, issue because what the SDA with this sweetheart deal with Coles has effectively tried to do is not just disadvantage the workers but get rid of penalty rates by stealth. And what comes out of this particular a fair work commission hearing will be will have consequences across Australia, but uh, we'll leave that sort of stuff and move on to this is the week that was. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull confounded the critics. Before I go on, don't old habits die hard, or perhaps it's just wishful thinking, nostalgia for the certainty of meaningless slogans droned out like a vinyl record with a stuck needle. Because as I typed this line, this is true, I wrote, big supremo, tiny a bit more for, oops, I thought wrong. Maybe it just means my mind's gone into reverse more than normal. Anyway, a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull, he's the one, confounded the critics by 
wait for it, sit down, take a deep breath by making a decision. Yes, he made one. I have made a decision, he proudly announced. And what? The fawning media subjects asked breathlessly, is your decision, O oh Master? I have decided. Malcolm stood majestically with the arrogant deportment and confidence of the filthy rich to make a decision. Yes, yes, O oh Master, but, but what decision? I don't follow. What, what do you mean? I told you I have made a decision to make a decision. Uh, yes, yes, Big Supremo, but, but what decision? That is my decision. I told you I've decided to make a decision. As the bemused lackeys shuffled to their feet to report the excitement, Malcolm interrupted. And, he added proudly, there has been a major, major decision. What, what? The lackeys reignited the notebooks and microphones. The merchants of death have decided the public purse should hand them hundreds of billions of dollars. They handed us a white paper. Oh, yes, 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 what was on it? A blank check. Malcolm said the blank check would guarantee Trubluwazi trained killers could train kill thousands of bad guys, including evil terrorist wedding parties, which might also indicate some bad gals and kids, non-dear little children created in the image of the evil terrorist prophet, unlike our charming, delightful, giant mind think for themselves, great fun to be with, life of the party, cream of Trublawazi youth, brave young men and women in uniform, trained killers, created in the image of the dear baby Jesus. In those places all over the world where our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, orders us to invade. If the fawning acolytes had asked, how could we afford these billions to make us safe by slaughtering the bad guys as determined by the US of, which thankfully they didn't, Malcolm would have told them we would pay for all this by lowering taxes on people like him and slashing services for people, well, people like us. After all, as big economic guru Scuttlebem more lash sun keeps informing us in his expert analysis, we have a spending problem, not a revenue problem. Uh, so we solve the spending problem by spending billions. Exactly. As, as well as the flow on benefits of providing jobs for the workers. Jobs, jobs, jobs for the workers in the merchants of death industry. Uh, true Blue Aussie jobs. Certainly, some true blue Aussies may benefit by providing support services like unloading the kill, kill, kill stuff. Although we need to keep preventing those lucky, lucky beneficiaries from crucifying their caring employers, we, we may need to march them off the job and replace them with happy, happy workers prepared to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. Uh, yes, the sorry protectors of law and order of freedom escorting workers off the job and escorting $2 an hour workers onto the job, does that mean that negotiated agreements are now illegal?
Not in every case, not universally. It must be seen on a case-by-case basis. It becomes illegal if $2 an hour happy, happy workers are available and the true blue Aussie workforce objects to being replaced, makes itself illegal, steps outside the law, shows no respect for norms of society, for the legislative process. And don't forget, those workers could retain their jobs, 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 if they were prepared to match the wages and conditions of those happy, happy workers replacing them, if if they don't let their avarice and selfishness get in the way or be puppets of evil union bosses. And as Gina has proved, $2 a day workers can be happy, happy workers. Our policy is to make workers happy, happy. Uh, these cuts to services to service the merchants of death, how will those who rely on those services survive? They probably won't. But remember, this whole spending is about killing people over and above making the merchants of death even more filthy rich. But in this case, and this is a positive, as Scuttle them said just the other day, a positive going to the great compassion of this government, the sick, the poor, the homeless, will die knowing we have made them safe. Naturally, if the workers are squatted off to make way for the happy, happy workers, wonder if they'd be so enthusiastic about providing jobs, jobs, jobs for those happy, happy workers if they had to pay the same wages and conditions, which does pose the odd question, how come they don't have to? Anyway, if the displaced are squatted off by the law workers swore at or called their replacement scabs, then they would be charged with the most heinous of crimes, showing why we need a tough cop on the beat, as that rabid socialist former Big Supremo Brackets temporary Julia Gallinghart said, to charge those evil workers for serious offences like existing. Charges this week against several evil CFMEU officials, union bosses, and let's not think for one second there is some connection to the government wanting to arm even more strongly the tough cop on the beat. Why, the Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, couldn't believe anyone would think such a thing. Evil officials were charged with calling scabs scabs. And as the top, top cop on the beat, Nigel Hodge, kissed the bosses, said, workers prepared to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay have a right to go to work without being the subject of abuse, like being called a scab just because you're scabbing. And shock, shock, often an expletive deleted scab. Who ever heard of a building worker swearing? In this case, that is literally a crime. But at least the government's numbers, number one priority to create jobs, 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 threatened by those workers wanting crippling impediments like wages and conditions, at least there's a breakthrough. Figures this week showed wages growing at the slowest rate in eons, indeed contracting in real terms. And we all know, because those who know about these things and what's good for all of us, like Malcolm and Scuttle them and those financial experts, wizards, dredged before the cameras and microphones by the day, tell us wages are the impediment to jobs. If wages decline, then obviously there'll be a massive boost in unemployment. But, but hang on, wages down, unemployment up. 
Malcolm, scuttle them, Saul, Shane, Chris. Why have low wages led to higher unemployment? In a word, unions. In two words, evil unions. Uh, notice you didn't answer, Malcolm. What do you think? I will decide before the election. Thank goodness we now have a big supremo who doesn't sound like a vinyl record with the needle stuck. Speaking of, the Minister for Coshing the Workers, and I know we'd rather not, but, and Michaela is also Minister for Women, two weeks ago we talked about meritorious government appointments like former Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Philip Rubbish, becoming our big supremo on human rights. Well, last week, as Minister for Women, Michaela announced the new discrimination commissioner after showing just how highly the government regarded the position. It had only been vacant for five months and, well, there wouldn't be too much sex discrimination in five months in this country, particularly with that lot looking after it. Yes, this former free hails the boss's partner announced the new commissioner is, you guessed it, another former free hails the boss's partner. Why not make them the government? Although we probably don't have to, they are de facto. Now, we might think they're staking the deck in a lot of these appointments, but let me assure us, no. Different if a Socialist Party government, hypothetically, of course, they never would, appointed a current or former evil union official to the role, because that would be biased in the caring business class party and the lapdog, or sorry, watchdog media, would soon let it know just how biased and unreasonable and unsuitable that would be. But the media assure us this ex free hails the boss's partner's appointment is ideal. A woman with an outstanding record. Actually, we should be relieved. All we ended up with was free, was a free hails the boss's ex-partner. Earlier in the week, there was speculation, this is true, former big supremo, Tiny's former big office supremo, Peter with an A, was being considered for the job. On one level, it made sense. Her history in Tiny's office shows she knows all there is to know about discrimination. And she could have sat in a new office, happily counting the huge redundancy payments she received thanks to the caring business class party's backstabbing blood letting, something she also knows plenty about. Redundancy for Tiny staff estimated at, again, true figure, three and a half million. Well, as one of their predecessors said, life wasn't meant to be easy. Finally, in a week when the merchants of death are rubbing their hands yet again, we have balanced that by showing we can send babies back to torture, asher to asher, dust to dust, but also host the world's uranium waste for a few hundred thousand years, showing we care about people's health. Even if we don't do anything as silly as spend money on it. Good morning. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. There is power in a union. Now the lessons of 
Well, and on the line we've got Dr. Noah Bazil. I hope you've got one of those books, Noah. I do, actually. It's a fantastic read, and I recommend it to anyone who's got any interest in uh, leftist issues. And, uh, and it's a good tale of um, you know, many of the key, um, the key sort of pressing issues that, uh, that face us and have faced us over the last 20 or 30 years. It's also very beautiful. It's, it's beautifully it crafted. It is, yeah. It's a lovely little book and, a, and you know, a, a lovely memorial to a, to a man we uh, all held very dear. Exactly. And uh, on a much more uh, sort of innovating subject, we have to congratulate you and your wife on your new edition. Thank you very much. Yes, little Hugo was born just over four weeks ago and he's thriving and uh, we may not be getting a huge amount of sleep, but for very good reason. And, and yes, the main thing is he's doing very well. Well, congratulations. So we're not the only ones getting you up early on a Saturday. No, no, I've been up since four. I think I said to Annie, so, um, yeah, I'm well and truly well read this morning as well. So <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> and uh, the topic I wanted to, to, I suggested we talk about was uh, why do we have to have a war in Syria? What's so important about Syria? And uh, it's definitely not as uh, the original PR was about, that uh, allowing uh, Syrians to have free choice in their political masters? Um, well, look, let me start by saying we don't need to have a war in Syria. <laughs> um, I mean, we are having one, and it certainly it is a front now for a number of different uh, regional and global uh, sort of power plays between the US, of course, and Russia, but also more, I think... Uh, more importantly, in terms of the devastation in the Middle East between Syria and Iran uh, and Turkey as now a new player in this sort of uh, regional um, sort of uh, sort of regional uh, play for, for power and influence. And it's really unfortunate, but in many ways, the Syrian war is no longer really about Syria. Did, it's about those interests and the way that they uh, overlap and intersect in this part of the world, which is, has, you know, historically been um, a major battleground for colonial and, uh, and neo-colonial powers. Now, the uh, Saudis have been reported, not really in our papers, but uh, in general have been reported as the uh, basically the ones who have, are now... Uh, prosecuting this war using uh, Turkish bases, uh, and I was wondering if uh, the use the Turks and the Saudis are like uh, being um, showing their loyalty to the Grand Master, the US, in what they're doing. Ultimately, they are, but they also have their own interests in um, in intervening in Syria. Um, the Saudis are playing a very, uh, they're playing a double game, a dual game in, in a sense. I mean, first and foremost, their key interest is outing Bashar al-Assad. More than anything, they want to prevent the, or, or undermine Iranian influence in the region. And they've made this very clear. Uh, they've made it clear both officially and through sort of uh, more uh, uh, secretive um, 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 communiques with you know uh, 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 others that has been you know and this has been going on for some time and we have some of that evidence through WikiLeaks and we have some of that evidence from other leaks elsewhere um, and that's I mean you know really ISIS in a sense or 
Daesh or whatever they're being called at the moment, um, are partly a manifestation of Saudi policy in the region. So, but they're, they're also fearful of ISIS, and that's that dual game in that uh, if ISIS proves to be successful, then there's a competitive or a competitive Islamic competitor in this sort of uh, space that, that really does threaten the legitimacy of the uh, the Saudis to claim that they are the protectors of the two holy sites and ultimately the protectors of, of Islam in the region, uh, for Sunni Muslims in particular. Uh, so they are concerned about the success of ISIS, but they also need or they, they, they have surreptitiously um, funded ISIS as a... Uh, in an attempt to overthrow Bashar al-Assad and also to, to, to sort of increase the, the pressure on the uh, Shia-led government in Iraq. In Iraq. Um, so, I mean, that's part of the Saudi interest. And Turks have an interest, or Turkey has an interest as well, in using... Uh, they also want to see Bashar al-Assad overthrown, um, but they are also using the chaos and crisis in Syria to attack the Kurds, um, especially the YPG, who, as far as they are concerned, uh, are a major threat to the sort of Turkish dominance or the Tur Turkey's do domination or its, um, its um, repression of Kurdish rights, which is, you know, an ongoing thing that, that an ongoing problem uh, over mo much of the 20th century, ever since the formation of Turkey out of the Ottoman Empire. So, I mean, those are all overlapping issues that play out, um, that are playing out on the ground in Syria. And, of course, the victims of these sort of uh, converging interests are the Syrian civilians. Now, there's a couple of things there. Uh, the, uh, uh, do you think that uh, Daesh or ISIS are similar to Hezbollah in relation to the Israelis? Because uh, uh, Hezbollah was created out of a, uh, a, um, a, a move by the Israelis to try and cause disaffection, but they got away from them. And the uh, bombing that's been going on in Turkey, which the Turkish state is saying is Kurdish-inspired, but in actual fact everybody's very dubious about this. Oh, look, I, I, you know, the, the bombings, can I start with that? I yeah. Mean, you know, there's every possibility that the Kurdish um, opposition is responsible for it. I mean, we don't have evidence for or against it. Um, the the Kurds, I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at them, but until we see some evidence one way or the other, it's really difficult to know. Um, and yes, the Turkish government may be using this as a smokescreen smoke to uh, heighten their repression against the Kurdish opposition, who they are very, very fearful of. Uh, because legitimate, uh, legitimate uh, Kurdish opposition could be uh, could uh, threaten the hegemony of the uh, ruling party. There's no doubt about that. And Erdogan has moved from being a, sort of an elected leader, and he has been elected, but a number of times. But he's increasingly taking on the characteristics of a of an autocrat, uh, the way that he's purged his own party, uh, the way that he sort of his the political system has been recast in a way that makes it very difficult for any opposition party to overthrow him. I mean, we've seen a uh, number of reports over the last uh, year or so of uh, um, 
uh, journalists who are critical of the ruling party being locked up or harassed. And so the, the sort of freedom of speech and the, the openness of the Turkish system, which was, you know, sort of part of it, I guess, its dynamism in the early 2000s, is starting to look uh, increasingly threatened under this uh, leadership. And so, you know, the Kurds are part of that um, resistance to Erdogan and uh, and his party. So there's every chance they are involved in um, some violent action against against the government. There's also a potential that it is um, an Islamist movement, a radical Islamist movement, or another group that you know we we don't know about. Um, the 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 fact that Erdogan was so quick to jump on the Kurdish issues suggests that maybe you know he is using this more as an opportunity. He's being opportunistic about it. Um, normally, you would expect a more reserved or measured response and some aim to try and get to the bottom of it because of, there has been no um no, no one's taken um responsibility for it as far as i can tell and so you know so anyway that's the that that i think is there is a sense that that is part of the politics of what's happening with turkey's involvement and you know their claims that they're using their military to attack ISIS when in fact they're attacking and everyone you know this has been reported in the in the international press over and over again the the attacks have been against the Kurds so um, yeah very worrying anti-democratic trends there within Turkey I wanted to ask about the motivations of Russia in this dispute because you hear a lot about it from the US side what they think the Russians are doing but I'd like to hear a bit more in detail about their stake in the conflict, if you could? Uh, well, I mean, I think there are a number of things. One, that Putin in particular uh, it, it takes every opportunity to uh, flex his muscles wherever he can, his sort of military muscle. And, you know, he is a populist leader that relies on um, the sort of typical populist populism. Um, but, you know, within Russia, it's, you know... Um, identifying minority groups that um, that he whips up some populist um, uh, sort of sentiment against. We've seen that with uh, homophobia, the increase mm-hmm. in homophobia in the last decade or so, also against some of the ethnic minorities. Um, so there's that element of it, you know, Russia flexing its international muscle, showing the Russian people that he uh, is a uh, force to be reckoned with globally. Uh, as part of his um, attempt to hold on to power. Um, so he's no good guy in this whole story mm. by any means. Um, but I think also there is a sense that, you know, Russia has lost some of its key um, allies over a decade since the end of the Cold War when uh, Yugoslavia was bombed and Milosevic lost power. That was a real blow, I think, to uh, sort of Russian sense of its uh, regional... Um, it's, it's sort of regional power. The Ukraine is an attempt to sort of bring back some of that regional uh, capacity there. Um, and I think uh, what's happening in uh, Syria, where he has an ally, um, is another attempt to sort of hold on to some of those regional or um, international alliances that sort of give, in his view, and sort of the realist view of international relations, Russia some... Um, uh, some capacity to to flex its muscle to to sort of uh, operate as a global power um so i think it's all those sort of things tied together and of course there is a sense that russia and the assads have been 
uh, allies for a number of times. So there's, a, there's possibly a personal element to it as well now. Um, it's hard to know what... I mean, there's lots of literature about, about it, but um, I don't see much economic benefit for Russia in being involved in uh, Syria. I mean, Russia is a major oil producer and gas producer itself. It doesn't rely on Syrian uh, natural resources. Syria is not a huge market for Russian goods. Um, and, uh, you know, Russia doesn't seem to have a huge amount of investment. It has some military interests in the bases on the, um, on the Mediterranean. But whether, it, you know, it would uh, risk a confrontation with uh, the U.S. over that, I, I really... It's got to be, I think, more around how this plays out for Putin and the, and, and the sense of his legitimacy or his attempt to maintain his legitimacy as a, as a strong, strong ruler. I mean, that's my sense of it. I, you know. um, the other thing is, of course, is that um, military action is actually part of the DNA of many of these states as well. Um, you know, they invest in the military. We've got our own government ramping up military investment. Um, you know, the generals and others are very close to government leaders. They influence the way that governments think about policy. All those things, I think, are part of the mix for why Russia's involved in Syria. It's very interesting because it seems I hadn't really thought about it from the Russian domestic perspective. I'd been kind of trying to find economic reasons, so that's very interesting. I think as well I'm quite interested in what's been happening with these, you know, so-called truces and peace deals that the Americans keep saying that they're about to, um, <laughs> that they're about to stitch up, um, which seems ridiculous. What was a there was one that they said they'd have peace in a week or something ludicrous like that. What yeah, was going yeah. on with that bluff? Um, well, I think the Americans have a. I mean, there is a sense that the Americans are um, has to have to portray themselves as uh, doing something as doing something positive. I mean, there is a sense that the U.S. is... And, and they play on this card often, that they are the sort of the... Um, the promoters of peace and harmony in global politics. And that's the, you know, that's the charade or that's the... And, you know, it's a charade because we know that ultimately um, American politics is about their imperial and their own economic and, and um, political interests. But there are many people within the State Department and elsewhere that are actually quite uh, driven by this idea of America as a benign power. And so uh, which is those... kind of interesting. It's a bit like, you know, the, uh, uh, the creation of the Superman myth from the comics. So, you know, they required uh, the uh, uh, America's uh, face was looking a bit daggy. So they created this uh, character called Superman. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I mean it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It is. I mean, I've got a really a PhD student of mine has done a really interesting study on the human rights movement and the emergence of human rights in the 1970s. Part of her argument is that the human human rights and U.S. sort of drive to to, to make human rights a major pillar of their foreign policy under Carter was really a response to the damage that Vietnam had done to U.S international image and also the fear of the rise of the third world as a counter sort of a, a, a sort of a, a challenge um, to US hegemony and that and phrase that, of humanitarian intervention which was their new kind of nicer way of putting it after Vietnam 
Well, that's right. And also, if we think about the 1970s, the, the successful humanitarian interventions were actually undertaken by third world states. Um, well, in the late 70s, the first real humanitarian interventions were Tanzania's in, intervention to overthrow Idi Amin in 1979 or 80. I, I can't remember the exact date. And the Vietnamese um, invasion of Cambodia, which uh, overthrew the murderous Pol Pot regime. That's they right. are probably the only two successful, you know, more successful humanitarian interventions. And here we have the U.S. in the 1980s, early late 70s and early 80s, remaking themselves from a sort of uh, you know power that was intervening in the way that they did in Vietnam to one that changed the discourse around sort of uh, um, anti-communism to you know humanitarianism and pro-democracy and pro-human rights. And so the invasion of, or the assistance for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan was about, not about fighting the Soviet Union. I mean, there was an element of that, but it was, you know, we, we are helping the people of of, um, of Afghanistan to regain their freedom and their human rights. And right through the 80s and 90s, this discourse, uh, the US discourse on intervention changed dramatically. So it became about... Um, human rights and humanitarianism rather than fighting the Cold War, even though it was about the Cold War. Um, the one genuine, uh, I, I think, e a effort to... On, so in the early 1990s, there was a real, I think, challenge for the US because it did attempt a proper humanitarian intervention in, in Somalia. Um, mm. And, of course, that turned into a debacle. I was going to say, good luck with that. Yeah. But then in 1994, when Rwanda... Uh, when the genocide in R Rwanda mm, yeah. uh, became, you know, sort of as it was unfolding, and you know, yeah, the, the US pictures, the pictures, sat on its hands. So the, you know, th that whole, yeah, that, that that exposes, I think, some of the real contradictions around this as well. But um, you know, what's happening in um, since the 9/11 has been that that facade of humanitarianism and human rights has been less important for the US in its interventions, whether it be in Afghanistan or in Iraq and elsewhere, even though they've relied on it somewhat um, and they can't completely discard it. Um, no, that's fascinating. Uh, be, uh, before we, uh, on that same theme, but uh, it's about Turkey. This has uh, turned up in my email. I just was wondering what you guys thought about this. But I, I got an email saying, Mercy and Justice International Short Film Festival opens. And it comes from Istanbul. It was on February the 23rd. And it's Istanbul's Chemekov uh, municipality has launched a Mercy and Justice theme international short film contest. The purpose is to introduce different aspects of the, uh, the teachings of uh, the uh, prophet Muhammad to help people understand him accurately. It goes on to say that uh, they're asking for 10-minute films and that it's being supported by the president of Turkey. And then there's all these major pri uh, money prizes. Isn't that fascinating? It is. Well, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a further attempt to, to silence any secular um, uh, sort of any, any secular cultural uh, activities, you know, that all human rights or any um, uh, sort of uh, progressiveness has to come out of Islam, and that's part of the Islamist project as well. I mean, that's the thing about Turkey is 
that. I mean, I, I was when I was over there a few years ago. I was talking to some uh, to to um, and an academic who was saying that you know the the way that this the Akbar party worked has been really sort of secretive and subtle in Islamizing uh, Turkish society, and that's changed a little bit in the last few years. Where I think there's been an attempt to um, to sort of uh, hasten that project. Uh, but she was saying that you know, for example, the um, the former Minister for Women's Affairs and for, I think it was Gender Rights or something, uh, uh, had been uh, had retitled, and the ministry had been retitled the Ministry of Family. Oh, no. You know, really moral, moralistic rather than about, you know, sort of the... Women's the, rights. Rights and things. So, you know, that those sort of subtle, you know, that may not be that subtle, but, you know... Um, it's more, it's far more subtle than ramming down, you know, forcing people to wear a hijab or you know, women to wear a hijab or whatever it might be. Um, no, but it's a classic case of people uh, being um, uh, colonised. They do the colonising yeah. themselves. That's right. Yes, mm. yes. So you change the you change the discourse, you change the cultural uh, landscape, and then people over time become um, acculturated to it. Absolutely, and that's I think that's what's happened in Turkey. It's also been an economic project where the Islamists have been given far more economic clout and because they provide social welfare and employment and a whole range of other things they're able to in, um, infiltrate or infiltrate the wrong word but sort of permeate society in a, in, in, in a far more um, uh, sort of uh, 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 conscious and um, um, effective way like the way so the Muslim Brotherhood did in Egypt absolutely you know this is one of the stories that hasn't really been told all that well um, is the way that as the state retreated partly partly uh, as a result of neoliberal policies that sort of forced the uh, winding back of state activities like education, healthcare, social welfare, subsidies on food, all those sort of things that are typical, typically uh, first casualties of neoliberal policy, then it opened space for the Muslim Brotherhood, but also that Mubarak and others like Ben Ali and the other dictators saw is the Muslim Brotherhood as part ally, part opposition, that is... They could open space for them. They were reactionary. They were anti-labor. They were anti. Um, uh, they were they were pro-capital. Well, they're anti-women. And, and, well, anti-women, and so yeah, you get the heightening of these culture wars around things like, um, you know, sort of uh, women's rights in the workplace, and and so you just you. Oh, and, um, all, and the death of, the death of the unionists. Yeah, and you distract people from their economic and material uh, questions. Uh, you know, they they focus on well, sh- you know, can we have kissing on television oh, instead yeah, of rubbish you know, stuff. should we raise the minimum wage? You know, those are the sort of things that happened in the culture wars. We've had them here for decades as well. You know, the cultural warriors talk about homophobe, you know, um, um, homosexual rights. You know, we've yeah. got people like Bernardi Safe and others. Co- coalition. Yeah, absolutely. They're fighting that war, and you know, people get invested in those issues rightly because they are important, but. You know, they sort of do so. Uh, they invest their energy in fighting for those rights. At the same time, they leave that landscape open around well, penalty penalty rates on weekends. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah I mean that's part it's disgraceful. of the, the, the whole mo of the of the conservatives is to fight on those landscapes, not on the landscape around economic issues, because they can't win those struggles. No, because they're just greedy bastards. Well, yes, well. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that was me. It's a lot of anger yeah. this morning. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. I mean, we are at a time now where we may actually 
you know, we're leading into an election here in Australia. We've got an election occurring in the U.S. And instead of the the real issues that, uh, you know, not not the gender rights or, you know, the right... No, but you would have thought that they were already won. I mean, it's an outrage that they Well, they're they tied should... to the economic issues. And but... they are. Obvi- they are, absolutely. I mean, Indigenous rights are tied yeah. to economic issues, you know. Uh, all, all the rights that we talk about, education and everything else, are all economic issues. And when the government wants to pull out funding for a anti-bullying campaign, there's an economic element to that as well. There's, we'll have to finish there. Okay, well, we, ultimately we always end up back here in Australia, regardless of where we We are. do. <laughs> yeah, thank you both. And thanks for the, good, the kind wishes on the birth of Hugo. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you yes. very much for coming back and talking to us. Yes, and no, a gorgeous name. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, have a good week. You yeah, too. Bye. Yeah, bye. And we have to go. We've only got three minutes to go. Uh, we have to tell you what we talked about. We uh, talked about... Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, O'Dwyer. fortunately. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we also had uh, inspiring words from uh, Lou... Uh, uh, sorry, Lou Wheeler from the uh, Fair Go for uh, Pensioners Action Group. We uh, went on and uh, had a word with Duncan Hart about uh, the disgraceful uh, deal, deal that, that the SDA and Coles have done. Yes, that's right. We had this is the uh, week that was. And, of course, we talked to Dr Noah Fazil. Anyway, that's us. That's a wrap. That's Solidarity Breakfast for this weekend. Catch you later. Catch you later. We'll go out with Phil Oakes. One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of centre in good times. Ten degrees to the right of centre if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers Tears ran down my spine And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy As though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.